Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So last week, we looked at two men. There was David and there was Saul. David is in the middle of a 16-month rebellion. The last thing the Lord told him to do was stay in Judah. Don't leave. And he decides in his own heart that the best thing he could do, the, the best way he could save himself is to go over to the Philistines and live with the enemy, the enemy of God, the enemy of Israel. So he moves his entire family and every man that's with him, all 600 guys and their families, and he moves them over to the Philistines and he lives in this town called Ziklag. And for 16 months, all he does is lie and deceive the king of the Philistines, telling him, hey, I'm with you. I've turned my back on Israel, I'm with you. And then this point in the story hits where the king eventually says, all right, you've been doing such a good job going out and raiding these Israelite cities, even though David wasn't, he was raiding Amalekite cities and telling the king of the Philistines that he was raiding Israelite cities. He was lying about what he was doing. The king says, you're so good at what you do. I'm gonna go up and fight against Israel and I want you by my side. And it puts David in a pickle because he doesn't know what he's gonna do. So he goes along with the story and the deception. He says, of course, yeah, I'll go with you. And then all of a sudden the story stops. And the story pivots and we pick up on this character Saul. And all of a sudden at this point, the Philistine army has already gathered for war in northern Israel. And Saul, who has been walking in sin, not for 16 months, but for over 25 years, he sees the army of the Philistines gather, he's on Mount Geboa, and he doesn't know what to do because he has killed all the priests, the prophet Samuel is dead, and the Lord has departed him. And he's praying out to God, I see this Philistine army, God, what am I supposed to do? And the Lord doesn't answer him. So we see an act of his rebellion, he goes and finds a witch in a nearby town and asks her to conjure up the spirit of Samuel so that he can, ask, he can ask dead Samuel, what should I do? And Samuel actually appears to him and says, you're not gonna do anything, you're gonna lose, just like you kept losing, there's no way to change this. You're gonna die tomorrow. Well, at that point in the story, we don't know what happened to David. When Saul is standing on the mountain looking over on the Philistines trying to figure out what to do, is David among the Philistines? What happened to David? We're gonna pick up the story there today. 1 Samuel 29 is not chronological order. It actually goes back in time and answers that question, what is David going to do? So to help you understand and kind of get your head around this, I wanna show you a map that looks very similar to the map I showed you last week with one added city onto it. That's gonna be referenced in 1 Samuel 29. So as we zoom in here on the Middle East, what you're gonna see is a very similar map to last week, the red blob, that is all the kingdom of Israel that Saul had captured at this time. You've got Ziklag, this is where David has been living. You've got Gath, this is where the king of the Philistines are, lives, that's where his throne is. You've got Shunim up here and Jezreel and Mount Gilboa. So when Israel gathers for war against the Philistines, the Philistines are in the valley of Shunim, right outside Jezreel, and Israel is right here in Jezreel on the Mount of Gilboa, very close to, one, to each other. 
So last week in 1 Samuel 28, the Philistines had already left Gath, gone north, gathered here, and Israel is gathering here. But as we pick up in the story today, we're actually going back in time, and we're going to pick up in this little town called Aphek. So what happens is, what we're reading today is before Saul ever goes and consults the witch, before the Philistines ever gather for war, before Saul even sees the Philistines gathering for war, there's a pit stop in Aphek and something happens with David and the story about what David's gonna do, is his lie gonna be revealed? Is he gonna go fight with the Philistines against Israel? Is he gonna kill Saul in battle? All that gets resolved. So now that you're caught up, let's go to 1 Samuel Chapter 29, we're going to pick up in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, David and his men were passing on in the rear with Ahish. So now we're in Aphek, they're heading up towards Shunim, but we've looked, now we're in this city. The commanders are heading off to war, and David is at the end of this group with the king. And the commanders, verse 3 of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? So he notices David and all of his men. So the commanders of the Philistines are asking the king of the Philistines, why do you have these Hebrews here? We're going to fight Hebrews. Why are there some here? And he said to his commanders, the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. And the commander of the Philistines were angry with the king. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to the Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? This dude, if you bring him to battle, is going to turn on you in the middle of the battle and he's going to fight for the Israelites. Because once an Israelite, always an Israelite. His commanders are telling the king this. And they add to the argument, is this not David of whom they sing to one another and in dances Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands? And the king called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. No, he hasn't. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me be in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. But nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now. Go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David looks at the king and says, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? And Ahish answers David and says, I know, man. You are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. I love you, David. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. 
Now then arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Okay, so at this point in chapter 29, we finally discover what happened to David. What happened to David? The Lord's kindness happened to David. In the middle of David's deception and lies, the Lord showed generosity to David. And he moved on the hearts of the commanders of the Philistines, and he used the enemy to get David out of his own pickle. That's how David got out of it. David didn't lift a finger. David didn't do anything to get himself out of his mess. The Lord got David out of his mess. The sheer kindness of the Lord pulled David out of his mess and he went home without having to do anything to get himself out of his mess. Now, do you remember when I said a couple chapters ago, we've been working through this theme of the wilderness years. David is wandering in the wilderness. He's running from Saul. And in the wilderness are all these lessons that you can learn, the wilderness lessons. This is an important lesson that David learned about God in the wilderness. That God is an unbelievably generous God even when you're in the midst of your own sin. Even when you have completely failed and disobeyed the Lord, the Lord is still kind and generous towards you. Why? Why in the world would the Lord be generous to you when you are rebellious? Why would he do that? Because Paul tells us in Romans 2.4 that it's kindness that leads to repentance. And we find out in Acts 11.18 that repentance leads to life. So how do you take somebody who is walking in sin, who is walking in rebellion, how do you get them out of that? The Lord shows kindness to them, generosity to them, extends to them a way to get out. That's what the Lord is up to. He is up to being kind to those who don't have any business having kindness extended. What is, could we come up with a word for that? It's called grace. Getting what you don't deserve. It is the grace of God that every single one of you are sitting in this room today. Not a single one of you could have lifted a single finger to do anything to fix your issue of sin. You're not getting yourself out of your own mess. You need a third party who's outside of the situation to save you because you can't save yourself. And that's where the Lord and his generosity in the middle of your sin is extended to you and says, hey, I've provided a way. You see that cross? You see that empty tomb? That's the way. Believe in me and I'll wash your sins away. That's a pretty good deal, is it not? And this is the deal that David learned in the wilderness. The generosity of the Lord coming our way even in the midst of our own sin. 
But there was another lesson that David learned that day because he's looking at a king who is walking in deception. Now, why is the king in deception? Because David has been lying to him for 16 months. David's gonna be a king one day and he has to ask himself, how do I keep myself from walking in the same kind of deception when I'm a king? Well, how did the king get the opportunity to step out of his deception? He didn't know any better. He's believing every word that David is telling him. So how can he get out of his own deception? How can he stop being blinded by his own lies? His outside commanders tell him the truth. And David is watching this. And David is seeing that the commanders can see right through David's lies. David can fool the king, but he can't fool the commanders. And the commanders are telling the king, this is what's gonna happen, man. If we bring David into the battle, the first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna turn around and he's gonna start attacking us with the Israelites because he loves Saul. He sees Saul as the anointed king. He's not gonna kill the king. And if you read into what David says to the king of the Philistines, you find that that's probably what was gonna happen. Because in verse eight, we're told that when he speaks to the king, he starts with this phrase, what have I done? Do you know the other times that David uses that phrase, what have I done? Remember the time when he came up to his brother and Goliath was shouting and all the Israelites were afraid. They didn't want to go to battle. And his, he comes to bring some, some food to his brothers and his brother accuses him of, of just snooping around and, and being in the way. And he responds to him, what have I done? He says that phrase again to Jonathan when Jonathan comes to him and he's talking about what Saul has, is doing to him. He's like, what have I done? And he also says it to Saul. This is 1 Samuel 17, 29, 20, verse 1, and 26, verse 18. He uses this phrase th- three times. And every time he says, uses this phrase, what have I done? It's a reflection of the reality that in his own heart, he is blameless. He does not think what he is doing is wrong. He is not trying to lie. Well, then you would ask, well, then why does the end of the paragraph when he says, that he says, um, uh, until the day on service that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. That's an interesting phrase, David, my Lord the King, because the only time, the only people, or the, excuse me, the only person that you ever call my Lord the King is Saul. 1 Samuel 28, 24, 8, 1 Samuel 26, 17. So he's saying, I want to fight for my Lord the King. Who's my Lord the King? Saul is my Lord the King. David's plan the whole time, and he was clear conscienced about it, that he was gonna go into battle and he was gonna turn on the Philistines and fight them because he would not fight Saul. Saul was his king. And so the commanders are seeing this and like, "Uh, duh, this guy is not gonna fight for you. He's not on our team. Do not let him go fight for us. We're gonna suffer if we do. But the king's like, no, you don't know him like I know him. And so David is looking at this king and he's like, man, there is nothing like the deception that we create for ourselves. A man in power can be so lied to. A group of citizens in a country can be so lied to. A church can be so lied to that they just fall in line and they never ask 
questions. And David says, how do I protect myself from that kind of deception? This is the wilderness lesson. You keep people close enough to you that can speak the truth to you when you are walking in deception yourself. David's watching these commanders give the king wise counsel. The king won't take it. And David is thinking to himself, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I learned my lesson. And we see him learn that lesson with the way he treats the prophets when he becomes the king. There's a situation we'll discover when we get into 2 Samuel where David steps over the line and takes some things that are not his and there's nobody in the kingdom that can tell him that he is at fault. He's covering up his sin. He's lying about it. He's killing people to hide it. And then this prophet comes up and tells David the truth and David trusts the prophet and his heart breaks and he turns to repentance. For David, the men who he kept closest to him were the prophets. David learned his lesson in the wilderness. Now let's continue with the story. Let's go to verse one in chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. Ziklag was David's home. They had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters have been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. And David's two wives who had been taken, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Let's pause there. So David returns home. He's told by the king, you can't fight with us. And he says, all right, I'll take my men and go home. So they make the long, over 60 mile hike back down to their hometown. And when they get there, they find out their home has been raided. All the men, women, and children have been taken, and the city has been burned to the ground. And David's men are furious. And they start blaming David. And the question you have to ask yourself is, when you read this is, why? Why are David's men mad at David? Because this whole situation is David's fault. That's why they're mad. Because if David had not been lying to the king that he would fight against Israel, and they had been all the way up in Shinoam, they would have been back down in Ziklag and they could have defended their hometown. But had David not disobeyed the Lord and moved out of Judah, 
and stayed there, they would have never been in Ziklag in the first place. And had they never been in Ziklag in the first place, then he never would have been lying to the king this entire time and raiding the Amalekites and lying about it and saying that he was raiding Israel. And now his sin has finally caught up to him because the towns that he had been raiding, the Amalekites, they had enough. And when David was out of town with his men, the Amalekites are the ones who came in and burned his hometown. That's why his men are angry. Because David's sin for 16 months has finally caught up to him. Now at this point, we have to ask ourselves, David, what are you gonna do, man? This is like that moment where you're sitting in one of those, one of those church services and the preacher's preaching something and you feel like he's been like reading your mail and your emails and searching your browser history and he's like, this guy knows something about me. Look, I don't know anything about you. But it's one of those services where you're sitting and you're just like, oh, you just, and the Holy Spirit's getting you in and you're just like, something's gotta give, I don't feel good. And it's, and it's at this point, what are you gonna do, dude? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna change your life? Or are you just gonna hold on to the bottom of your seat until the whole thing is over and then pretend that you can leave and the, and the Lord won't haunt you outside of this building? What are you gonna do? David says, I'm gonna break. I've had enough. We're told in verse six that David strengthened himself in the Lord, but that word strengthened in English just doesn't capture the Hebrew word hazak. The Hebrew word hazak means not just to strengthen, but to grasp hold of something. To grab something really tightly. It's also a word that means to grow. It carries with it this idea of a tree putting its roots deep into the ground, grabbing hold of the soil, the nutrients in it, and then growing up out of the situation. How did David handle this moment where he's confronted with his sin? He didn't lie about it again. He didn't run from it. He grew out of it. He turned to the Lord with repentance and he matured out of the situation. This is the point where David ends his 16 months of rebellion and sin. He turns and he says, I want God more than I want me. Do you remember how this started? We are told that David decided in his own heart, this is what I have to do. At this point, David is saying, I need to stop trusting my heart. My heart keeps letting me down and deceiving me. And I don't want to end up a king like King Ahish, who is so deceived that even the people around him who can see clearly and are trying to tell him the truth, he won't listen to him. So I've got to make a change because my men are about to kill me and I have come to the end of my rope. I've lost everything because I've been walking in a path that follows just what my heart says. And so he says, it's time for me to start listening to what the Lord says. So he turns, let's see what happens. Verse seven, it says, David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, this is what he asked God, should I pursue after these men, this band, and will I overtake them? And God answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him. And they came to the brook of Bezoer, where those who were with 
uh, excuse me, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Bezwer. The found, and, and, and as soon as they crossed over, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? And the way it's just detailed, like why do we have all that detail about this one Egyptian they found in the field? We're about to find out. Because when he had eaten, his spirit revived and he had not eaten bread and drunk water for three days and three nights. This guy was just about to die. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, well, I'm a young man from Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. See, we had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah, against the Negeb of Caleb, and we also burned Ziklag with fire. This dude was there. He's one of the men who burned David's town. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I'll take you down to this band. Let's pause. So right after turning from sin towards God, what does God do? He shows David kindness again. As soon as David turns, they're on the road and they don't know where they're going. They know they gotta find these guys who are responsible, but they don't know where all the wives are, they don't know where the children are. They're just out in the desert wandering, trying to find this band. And who do they find? An Egyptian who was literally about to die. Hadn't eaten or drinking in three days and was already sick he had been hanging out with the Amalekites, he was a servant of them, and they left him behind, and he's just out there. What are the chances of finding one Egyptian who is almost about to die in the middle of the desert? Have you ever seen a picture of the desert? This is how much chances, zero chances. There is no chance David would have come across this guy if it wasn't for the kindness of the Lord. And it wasn't just any Egyptian. And David didn't even know who this guy was. David was generous to this guy before he even knew that this guy had intel on where the band was. What does that tell us? This tells us that all the generosity that David is receiving from the God of the universe is starting to change him on the inside out. The generosity God is showing David is starting to make David a generous person. And so what he does is he takes everything he's got, and like, he is like overloading on this dude. Here, man, here's some fig cakes, here's some grapes, here's some raisins, keep eating. Get your strength back. Doesn't even know who this guy is yet, just wants to be generous to a guy who's in trouble. Because he was a guy who was in trouble, and God was generous to him. And come to find out, this guy was a servant. He was a slave to the Amalekites. And he says, I'll take you to them if you promise that you're not going to kill me. 
And at that moment, David recognizes God as being generous to him again. See, God, God was generous to David in getting him out of that mess that he was in up in Shinoim. And that profoundly impacted David to the point where he wanted to extend the kindness he had received from his heavenly father to somebody he found. But then once he extends that kindness, he realizes that the Lord uses his kindness right back on him. And as soon as he feeds this guy and he's got enough food in his belly, he realizes the Lord is using this guy to get him to where he needs to go. This is the guy with all the information on where to find this group. The Lord is kind to David again. The Lord is kind to his people when they're walking in their sin, and he's kind to his people when they're walking the righteous path. God, we serve a kind and generous God. And this is profoundly shaping David. Let's go to verse 16. It says, when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who he had left and had been too exhausted to follow David. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David came near to the people and he greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, hey, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. You can have your wife and kids, but you don't get any of the treasure that we just took. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, with, with what the Lord, look, we didn't get this by the strength of our own hands. If it wasn't for the Lord putting that Egyptian in the middle of the desert, we would have never found them. If it wasn't the kindness of the Lord being generous to me in the middle of my own sin, we would have never gotten out of this mess in the first place. Because of what the Lord has given to us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage, and they shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So he, he gave of the spoil to his men who couldn't fight, didn't fight, but he also, when he went home, sent spoil back to the elders in Judah, to men who were not even with David. 
It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth and Negev and Jatir and Eroir and Sifmoth and Eshtemoa and Rakal in the cities of Jeremalites and the cities of the Kenites and Hormah and Borashan and Atach in Hebron and all the places where David and his men had roamed. So David conquers the Amalekites. He takes the spoil and the men who were fighting with him reaped the benefit. And the men who weren't fighting with him reaped the benefit. And the men of these cities in Judah reaped the benefit. The generosity of the Lord towards David was so rich in David's eyes that it profoundly started changing his posture towards everything around him. He actually made it a statute that in this kingdom, we will be a generous people. Why, David, why are we having to be so generous to all these people who didn't do anything to help us? These guys aren't even with us. Why are you sending stuff back to Judah? David responds, because the Lord was generous to me while I walked in sin for 16 months. Because the Lord was generous to me when I turned to him in repentance, because the Lord was generous to me when I thought all was lost, but he restored back to me even more than what I had lost. Because the Lord is generous to me, we shall be a generous people. Now to me, of all of the wilderness lessons that David learned, I think this is probably my favorite. That at the end of everything, David looks back on not just the 16 months in sin, but his whole over 10 years of wandering in the wilderness. What does he see when he looks back on these desert years? Does he see heat and cactus and, and running from snakes and running from Saul? Does he look back on this season as the worst season of my life? No, he looks back on the season and all he sees is the kindness and the generosity of God preserving him, even at the end when he decided he could do it himself. The greatest lesson that David learned in this season is that we serve a generous God and therefore we, shall be, we, we should be a generous people. We serve an unbelievably generous God and therefore it should shape who you are on the inside and you should be a generous person. That's a good lesson. Now, as I'm looking at this, I'm asking myself, if David saw something profound about God and that thing that he saw didn't just become a knowledge in his head, yeah, man, God is generous. Praise the Lord. He's so generous, isn't he? He's so generous. No, it can't stop there at your head. It has to move to your heart. If I'm watching a man who is profoundly impacted by a character, a trait of God, the generosity of the Lord, and he says, I love the Lord so much, and if that's what he's like, I wanna be like that, then I start asking myself, if we have been given Christ, and we treasure Christ above all other things, then what has he done that we should start modeling in our own lives? 
If David saw this about his heavenly father, how much more when we read the scriptures about Jesus should we start modeling what we see Christ set before us? If Christ works in specific ways when we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, should we not also model those ways? If Christ forgave us of our sins, should we not also forgive those in our lives? Do we have any ground to stand on to not walk in forgiveness? Is there any area of your life where you are justified in holding a grudge when your heavenly Father sent Christ to bear your sins on his shoulders and did not hold a grudge against you? Do you even have a leg to stand on? If we're looking at Christ being the complete work of reconciliation, should we not also mirror that character trait in the world around us and also walk and lead with reconciliation in the, in the relationships in our lives? When we see two brothers who are at odds with each other, do we pick sides? Do we listen to the gossip? Or do we work towards reconciliation? If we see Christ walking humble, te humble, humbly teaching others and loving children, is that not what we should do? I gotta tell you, there is not much that gets under my skin more than a father who speaks ill of his children. Ooh, if I hear that, mm, you're gonna hear it from me. God has, God has blessed you with children a continuation of your family line, someone to pour into, to raise up, and you've got the audacity to sit there and complain about them being an inconvenience? Ooh, could you imagine your heavenly father speaking about you that way? There's some moms in here that talk about their children that way too, but it's less common with moms because you've got a thing that guys don't have. There's a, there's a sense and there's a motherly, there's a thing that God has given you that he hasn't given men. It develops on the inside of us, but you've got to cultivate it. You've got to let your heart be kind towards children. You see it in Jesus' disciples. His, his disciples are like, get those kids away from him. We've got something more important. There's adults who need to hear the teaching of the Lord. Jesus is here. Get them kids out of the way. And Jesus is like, what is wrong with you people? He gets down on his knees and he's playing with kids, I imagine he's like doing a little trick. He's like, I pulled a coin out of your ear, but he literally pulled a coin out of their ear. <laughs> that's, that's my Jesus. He loves children. Guys, men, why don't you love children? I get it, sometimes they're hard to love. But, but if we're seeing that Christ, he comes to earth and he says, I'm gonna take on human form and I'm gonna show you what this is all about. This is the way I want you to walk. Why are you not walking this way? If we see Christ caring for the broken and for the sinners, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? If we see Christ with overwhelming generosity from the Father, is that not also our example? Overwhelming generosity to everyone that comes our way. Nothing is our own, everything's on loan from Him. Even the very breath in your lungs that He gave you to wake up this morning to come, that wasn't your breath, it was His breath. And then you use that breath to curse your brother? The generosity of, of God to fill your lungs with air. You should then use that air in your lungs to break forth in worship.
and to thank him for the generosity and to then extend that generosity to others the same way that David did. Now, as we're closing up today, this brings us to the end of the wilderness years. But it doesn't bring us to the end of your wilderness years. Some of you in here, as you're reading through the story, you're like, oh man, okay, well I'm glad we're at the end of David's wilderness years, but I'm still going through it. And you feel just like David, you're, you're wandering through the desert and it feels like somebody's always out to get you. And everywhere you turn, things are not working out. And you spend most of your evenings crying into your pillow because things just don't work out for you. When my kids were little, I read them a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Familiar with it? If you haven't read it, highly recommend it. I decided that I wanted to go through and read it again with fresh eyes. As an adult, not just reading to kids, but I wanted to see what the Holy Spirit would speak through that. What's he telling children? What did I miss the first time through? So I started reading through it and I got to this book called The Horse and His Boy. Let's be honest with you, the first time I read through, this was my least favorite book. I didn't even enjoy reading it to my kids. I was ready to jump to better things. Where's Prince Caspian? Voyage of the Don Treader. But this time, I started reading through the horse of his boy and something gripped me that aligns with what we're talking about here with these wilderness years. If you're unfamiliar with the story, the story is about this young boy who grows up in a foreign land and he grows up to a very, under a very hard father. This man beats him, treats him poorly. And around teenage years, he discovers that this guy actually isn't his father. And he discovers because one night, this man from a foreign land comes into town and wants to buy the kid from this man and the man is willing to sell the kid for the right price. So the kid sneaks out in the middle of the night and he finds the horse that this man had rode in on and he comes up to it and he says, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna run for my life. And he comes up to the horse and he discovers that this horse is actually a talking horse. And this horse is from a land far away called Narnia. It's a wonderful kingdom ruled by this good king named Aslan. He's a lion. He's a good king. He's a type of Christ. And he has a conversation with this horse and the horse says, look, you wanna get out of here? I wanna get out of here. But I can't just run through the wilderness because everyone's gonna think I'm, a, like I'm just, a, just a horse and, and I need a rider. So if you ride on my back, no one will think anything of a, of, a, of a child riding on the back of this horse and no one will question me. So we can work together and, and we'll get back to Narnia. So they make this deal, so, so they're gonna head back. And on their way back, they start going through all of these issues. It's a long journey, it's a very difficult journey. One of the first stops, they have to, they have to stop in this graveyard and sleep, sleep in the middle of the night of a graveyard. Now imagine a child sleeping through the night in a graveyard. And in the distance, he can hear these, 
these uh, hyenas who are coming for them. And then they get consumed by something, but it's all in the dark. And all he hears is this crying out and this wailing. He's scared for his life. And then he moves on. He goes to this next town and, and he's hiding out in this, this town and, and, he, and he's afraid for his life. He's hiding somewhere. And all of a sudden, one night, this cat comes up and just lays. And when the cat lays in his lap, he just kind of feels a sense of, of peace and he's able to go to sleep. And then along the journey a little more, he finds this other little girl who is also riding a horse who talks and they are also heading back to Narnia. And so they make this pact, this boy and this girl and these two talking horses, they're heading back to Narnia and they have to go through this desert. And as they're going through the desert, the horses start losing strength. And by the end, there's only three or four miles left in the journey, but the horses, they're just, they're out of it. They're, they're about to die. And, and just out of nowhere, a pack of lions comes out and starts pursuing these horses. And the horses find new strength and they just gallop and they just make that last four, four uh, miles. But in the middle, one of the lions reaches out and scrapes the back of the girl on the other horse. But they make it and towards the end of the book, this kid is now he's made it to where he needs to go but he's sitting kind of reflecting on the fact that he, his life is just the worst. He had a dad who wasn't really his dad, who used to beat him. He thought he would get to this place and find some purpose in his life, but now he's here and he doesn't really find any purpose. His best friend was clawed by a lion. He almost got eaten multiple times in the middle of the night. He says, I have the worst luck of anybody who's ever lived on planet Earth. And as he's talking to himself and tears are streaming down his head, down his face, he feels this sense that something is standing next to him. And he's immediately gripped with fear because he can feel that this thing is larger than him and he just decides this is the end. I don't know what this is, but there's something here and he looks and he realizes it's a lion and he, he's, he loses it. It's like, I have the worst luck. Now, after this whole journey, now I'm gonna be consumed and at this moment, with tears streaming down his face, the lion looks at him and it's Aslan and he speaks and he says, tell me your troubles, boy. And so the kid is kind of startled, but it's not the first time he's seen a talking animal, so he spills his guts. Uh, since you asked, I had the worst luck in my life. I, uh, everything is a failure, and he rehashes everything that happens in the book, all the bad things that happen to him. And when he's finally done and tears are still streaming on his face, the, the lion looks at him. Sorry. The lion looks at him and says, you don't seem like you are a boy with no luck. You seem to me to be the luckiest boy I've ever met. Because when you were spending the night in the graveyard and you heard the animals that were coming for you, I was the lion that ate them. And the night that you were camping in that house and you were afraid for your life, I was the cat that came and sat in your lap and gave you comfort. And the night that you were going through the desert and you couldn't make that last four miles because your horses were about to give out, I was the pack of lions. And it wasn't a pack, it was just me. And I was the lion who pursued you and gave fear in the heart of those horses so they could make it that last four miles. And you don't know this, but I was the lion who made sure that when you were a child were placed inside of a boat 
because you are the son of a king and your father was going to be killed and you were next. And you were placed in a boat and I was the lion who made sure that you found a fisherman who was by the seashore late at night so you could have a home to grow up in. And the boy looks at the lion and he says, well, why did you strike and claw my friend? Why did you wound her? And he looks at the kid and he says, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I only tell people their own story. I will not tell you someone else's. Here's the truth. I don't know your story, and I don't need to know your story. It's not important for me to know all of the intimate details of the way you've been wounded or hurt or the journey that you're going on because there is a king who knows all of the details and quite frankly, some of those wounds might have been from him. And when I say that you're going through this wilderness and you're going through this land and it feels like you're about to just give out, I'm here to give you hope and remind you that that wilderness that you are in is no different than the wilderness that David wandered in or the wilderness that Jesus wandered in or the wilderness that the children of Israel wandered in. God has given you this wilderness because there are things you need to learn about him and yourself and his character and the only way you're gonna learn them is if you go through the wilderness. But the good news is you're not going through it alone. Every conversation I have with someone in this church, we sit down and we have a counseling session and you share with me the pain that you're going through or a difficult situation. I don't have an answer for you. I don't have a way to fix it. I don't have a magic wand that I can wave to make things better and that's a good thing because what we need is not for things to get better. What we need is right perspective because things are broken right now because they need to be broken. The wilderness is a good place. It's not the place you would have picked, but it is a good place because it is the place that you discover that your king is the only thing you ever really need. See, when everything else is taken away, then your dependency on everything this world has to offer, it means nothing. And the only thing that matters is him and him alone, but you won't learn that unless you go through the wilderness. So as we come to the end of the wilderness season for David, we might still be in the wilderness season for you, but I want to offer you hope that the king, the same king who also walked the wilderness is with you and leading you to a better kingdom than this one. That the end goal after all the wounds after all the suffering, after all the pain. Guys, the reward is a better kingdom. And that is what he is pressing you on for. So this is my encouragement as we finish this chapter. Do not lose hope. Do not lose 
faith. Do not be so overwhelmed by what's happening in your life or happening in the world that you lose sight of where we're headed. We are headed to an eternal kingdom with a great and glorious king who is generous beyond anything we can imagine. Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.